never underestimate your own abilities. I tended to do that as a young lawyer. I tended to only want to do what I had already succeeded in. So I would say, push yourself and ask others whether you think you're capable of doing something, because a lot of times they'll see something in you that you don't even see. So really listen to the advice of others as to what you're capable of, but only listen to people who really know you. Don't listen to people who put you in a box and judge you. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today started in private practice, moved in-house as Deputy General Counsel at Marriott International, and was Chief Legal Officer at Duncan Brands. Recently retired, David is now working on phase three of his life as an angel investor, a mentor for first-time entrepreneurs, and arguably one of the most important jobs as a stay-at-home dad. He will also be starting as a student at Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement in September 2022. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, David Mann. David, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Seagal. It's great to be here. There are so many things that I'm excited to ask you about. But before we start, I ask a lot of our guests for a little bit of gratitude. So I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite thing that happened today? Ah, that's a great one. My favorite thing that happened today is I had breakfast with my kids and I talked to them about their day and I sent them off to school. And that's a great way to start your day. I agree. Is there anything that you generally talk to them about? Well, unfortunately, it comes down to shoes and socks. Sometimes we'll go over the schedule for the day and what's coming up just so they don't forget anything. And of course, uh, I love you and have a great day. How old are your kids? Lucas is 13. Uh, Ella is 10, although I think Ella's 10 going on 22. I have a three and four year old. I sometimes feel like they're seven going on eight. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. And it's crazy to me that at 13 and 10, there's still a socks and shoes conversation. Oh, yes. A little scary. That doesn't end yet. That almost never ends. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for that gratitude. I think that's awesome. So I want to get started. If you can just take us a little bit to what drew you to being a lawyer? That's a great question. I was one of these people who was an accidental lawyer. In college, I didn't really know what my major was going to be. I was really interested in philosophy, which prepares you for either teaching philosophy or becoming a lawyer. Then I spent a year after college uh, trying to get a job and not being successful. And then I took the LSAT, did pretty well, and went to law school. And even in law school, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a lawyer, but I knew that law school could be a springboard to many things. And it's turned out to be true for me. But I really fell into it for lack of a better thing to do. And I'm glad I did because it's been a very rewarding career. And I've made a lot of great relationships through the law. And so it's just a great platform for doing almost anything in life. You said something about knowing that while you were in law school, that it would be a really great springboard for many things. I find that interesting because in my conversations with a lot of lawyers in law school, particularly, they didn't know the range in which they could apply their legal skills until many years after they graduated. How did you know so early on that law school could do that for you? Well, I certainly knew that politics was somewhere where a lot of lawyers went. If you look at elected representatives, I guess more than half of the House and the Senate are typically lawyers, for better or worse. So I knew that was a possibility. 
And uh, I don't know what convinced me of that. A lot of my friends in law school were like me. They weren't people who even necessarily knew whether they wanted to practice law, but they were curious and interested and wanted to get a professional degree. So I'm not sure what it was specifically that led me there, um, but I guess I just never felt like it was limiting. And did you find that your philosophy degree helped you in law school? I do. You have to read a text very closely. You have to be prepared to argue it one way or the other. And you have to be a skilled communicator. It's a, a good place for a curious mind. It's a good place for learning about learning. I do think that was a good way to prepare. But I think almost any undergraduate degree in liberal arts can prepare you for law school or business school or similar degrees like that. I agree. I was actually an English major in college, and then I ended up going to law school, and I found that the reading comprehension and the ability to write was such a big asset for me in law school, especially because you're writing so much in law school. So it's very interesting to see the various different college degrees and how they help inform a lawyer's success in law school. Yeah, it's a great point. I think it all comes down to communicating. Processing information, learning and communicating it can be applied to almost anything in life when you think about it. 100%. So you graduate from law school. You really weren't sure that you wanted to be a lawyer, but you ended up going into private practice. I did. At my law school, you were invited by a lot of law firms to interview, and it was the thing to do. So I learned how to tie a tie and went to a bunch of on-campus interviews. And, you know, it's very enticing. They fly you to whatever city for an interview and put you up at a nice hotel and take you to a nice dinner. And it sounded like, wow, that's a pretty cool lifestyle to have. And the money wasn't bad. So I just, again, fell into that one. I figured that would be great training to work in a law firm and move to a big city. I'm from a small town, so moving to Washington, D.C. was very exciting to me. Where are you from? I'm from Southfield, Connecticut, a small town in northern Connecticut. So I was intrigued with living in a big city and meeting people from all over the country, all over the world. And it was exciting and fast-paced, and I learned a lot, and I still have a lot of great friendships from the time at the firm. But ultimately, I needed to have a life. So that's why I left, went to in-house. What kind of practice was it that you were doing in D.C.? It was a corporate practice. It was M&A. It was finance. It was securities. It was a very small group. So whatever client came in the door, whatever work had to be done, we would be assigned to do it. So it was a lot of holding your breath and trying to breathe underwater while learning at a very rapid pace. But I think that set me up well to have the confidence to tackle almost anything, even with no background. You realize you can come up to speed faster than you think on almost any topic that's not technical in nature. Any kind of practical advice that you could give to people that are in that position today? Yeah, I would just say keep your options open. I would return every headhunter's call and ask questions about every opportunity that came in the door. Some people love private practice and stay in it their whole careers. And I know a lot of successful lawyers who've made that a career and they're very happy at it. But it's very challenging from a personal point of view to manage getting clients, keeping clients happy, managing lawyers, managing an office. It's a very time-consuming career. So it just depends on what you want out of a career. So then you moved to Marriott. Why Marriott? It was a cold call from a recruiter. I'd never done any work for Marriott. I didn't know anybody who worked there. I was so busy at the law firm that I actually had to cancel my first interview, which ironically, I think made me more interesting as a candidate that I was so committed to my job that I would cancel an interview to make sure the work got done. So maybe that's something people can use as a strategy. But in any case, I came in not knowing anyone and found a, a terrific culture and a very interesting 
company, lodging is just so fascinating and rewarding in so many ways, including as a traveler. Most people listening will have stayed at Marriott hotels or hotels like Marriott, and it's just a, a great group of people to work with. I'll be staying in a Marriott in Vancouver. Oh, great city. I've actually never been, but I'm very excited to go. She'll love it. So you're at Marriott. You're there for 23 years? Yeah, 23 years, which, believe it or not, is not that unusual at Marriott. Until you hit your 10th anniversary, you're still considered a newbie at Marriott, at least in the old days. And I think it's still largely true that people stay there and make a career there because lawyers are given a lot of opportunities at Marriott that I guess is a little bit unusual. I think over my career, at least one lawyer per year would go and take a job on the business side, as we called it. So you had lawyers doing development deals, becoming hotel general managers, becoming regional managers. A lawyer even became CFO and then a CEO of the company. So lawyers really were almost like a, a training ground for senior executives in the company. So again, back to that idea that being a lawyer can open up doors and you really could create possibilities for yourself at Marriott. I never did that. I always uh, stayed in the legal role, but I felt like lawyers were given such latitude of responsibility and were listened to on non-legal matters. If you establish your credibility, you could be sitting at a table discussing something that has nothing to do with the law, but you're just there as another person thinking about how to solve a problem and come up with the best course of action. That's amazing, especially for an organization so large. How were they able to, how are you as a lawyer, let's say in the legal department, able to get into those conversations? Like what kind of structures were put in place where you were able to do all these different things? Well, for better or worse, it was a, a very much a matrix organization. And so you had a team working on almost any project and the team would involve business people, accountants, lawyers, communications people. You would get up a lot of exposure to other groups in the company. There was obviously a lot of travel, a lot of conferences, very much a team-based and a committee-based process. So you got to hear from a lot of experts. You got a 360-degree perspective on the business if you were willing to patiently listen and ask questions. Lawyers were not put in a box. We weren't a, a speed bump on the way to decision-making. We were really a part of the process from beginning to end. And that was the source of a lot of career satisfaction for me and many others. What a great way to think about your organization when you're saying people are new here all the way up to their 10th year. Yeah. And really saying I'm investing in these people and their growth and making sure that they're finding the satisfaction that they're staying with us for like a long time. Exactly. You might change your position or your role every two to five years, just as though you were changing companies, but you're still within the same company. And there's that many opportunities. With all of the institutional knowledge that you bring with you to that next role. Exactly. That's right. So you, you, people do build great portfolios of knowledge across different organizations and parts of the business, which you really need because it's a more complicated business than a lot of people realize it is. I'm sure. So why did you not leave the legal department? Is it just because you were able to have the ability to still be in a lot of these conversations? Yeah, I got the opportunity to do that. But as I explained at the time, I feel like I already am a business person and a lawyer at the same time. And I really liked the culture of the law department. I liked the people I worked with. There was a pathway to increased responsibility in the department. Uh, we tended to hire from within and promote from within. So I felt like I had the best of both worlds. I was a practicing lawyer for a great company, and yet 
I felt like I had the ability to think like a business person and be listened to as a business partner. What are some of the things about leadership that you learned while you were at Marriott? So many things, not from being taught in a classroom setting, but from watching role models, watching good leaders in action. And there were a lot of good leaders at Marriott. So I guess what I would say is I tried to emulate the people that I admired the most. And that includes the senior leaders in the law department, some of the senior leaders in the clients that I worked with, anyone from a general manager of a hotel to the general counsel of the company. Lodging is largely about managing people at the consumer end of it. Lodging tends to promote people and attract people who really want to be with other people and want to see other people succeed. And that was a great environment to be a lawyer in because you got exposure to that kind of person, that kind of personality. Yeah. And I really benefited from rubbing shoulders with really great leaders who cared about people, took the time to explain to them how their job fit in and gave them the tools and the opportunity and the encouragement to keep progressing in their career and not be afraid of opportunities that seemed like they were beyond their capabilities. And I received that advice and I took that advice to keep pushing myself in my career. I love that. So you were there for 23 years, but then you did leave, which is still 23 years, a long time. So you weren't new, even by Marriott standards. Right. And then you moved to Duncan Brands. Why the move? I wanted to be the general counsel of a law department for a public company. I love consumer brands. And it was like coming back to New England for me too, because I had lived in the Washington DC area for many years. So it was a perfect opportunity to come back home, to lead a, a terrific team and work for an iconic company, which is sort of the equivalent of the Boston Red Sox here in Boston. It's the home team when it comes to coffee and donuts. So I found another great culture in Duncan that reminded me a lot of Marriott, really a people first culture, a consumer culture, a culture of caring and serving others. I know Duncan is a franchise, right? Whereas is Marriott a franchise or is it, it's corporate, right? Marriott is both. Marriott both manages hotels and franchises them. So it's sort of a dual system. You're right. Duncan is a hundred percent franchised. So a lot of the work at Duncan involves relationships with a wide variety of franchisees all over the country and all over the world. So that's another constituency that I was familiar with. And that brings a lot of great ideas and enthusiasm and dynamism into a business. A lot of people don't realize when they go to a Duncan that there's a local person, many times they're a first time entrepreneur, most of them self-made and that's their livelihood. That's everything they own is in this store or series of stores. And that's exciting to be around. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit about phase three of your life. And I know one of the things that you're doing is mentoring first time entrepreneurs. How much of your work with franchises do you think influenced your desire to be a mentor for entrepreneurs? Yeah, you know, I hadn't even thought of that. It's a good observation. But I guess I've been around entrepreneurs my whole career. Bill Marriott was an entrepreneur when he was a young man and always was. That is a family business. Duncan is largely business of small family operators. So I guess I was familiar with the mentality and some of the lessons that I learned from them, I can hopefully bring to other first-time entrepreneurs. And a lot of it is just encouraging them that they can do it. Yeah. You don't need to have a degree. You don't need to have years of experience. You just need to have passion 
and the capability to do hard work and to work well with people. That's really what it takes in almost any business like that. So I feel honored to have been able to learn those lessons and hopefully bring them to people just starting out. Let's talk about this phase three. Because there are so many different schools of thought about the the amount of phases in life, I'd like to know, is this phase three of how many? (laughs) Ah, Good question. I don't think three is the last. So I don't know. I got that from someone else. I'm not sure what book I read, but phase one, you're growing up, you're educating yourself. Phase two, you have career and family. And phase three used to be You get the gold watch and you sit in a rocking chair and you take care of the grandkids. Well, that's changed, obviously. Phase three, anyway, phase one and two haven't changed that much. But phase three, people are retiring earlier. I retired younger than I ever thought I would. And my kids are still young. So there's so many more possibilities as we're living longer and living healthier than there ever were before. I just thought this is an opportunity to just try new things, almost like going back to college again. Try new things, see what you like to do, chart your own destiny. It's great to have free time and the ability to do new things. So how did you make the decision? You're chief legal officer at Duncan Brands. You were there for about three years. What made you decide, you know what, it's time for phase three? Well, it was handed to me. Uh, Our company was acquired. A lot of positions were eliminated, including mine. And so I had a choice. Do I go back and look for another job? Or don't I? And I guess COVID and the great resignation influenced me, like so many others, to not just automatically go back to work and continue doing that. So I thought to myself, I'll have a test period and see how it goes. And it's been just a few months, but it's going great. And I found things to do that, again, came at me out of the blue. A law school classmate in Boston I hadn't talked to for 20 years. Uh, I got in touch with her and she introduced me to e for all Roxbury, which is the mentoring program I talked about earlier. And that was terrific. I signed up as a mentor and through that connection, I met another mentor who heads up, she's the executive director of Watchpad Ventures, which is a large angel investment group. And I just sort of cold called her and she said, why don't you think about joining Watchpad? So I it was on a few calls. I talked to some people and now I'm a, a member of uh, an angel investment group. If you had asked me a year ago, if I'll be doing either of those things, I would have said, no, why would I be doing those things? So I guess it's just feeling willing to open up your mind to new things and trying things out that are not in your wheelhouse or what you've done before is how I'm doing it. And so far, so good. Maybe I'll be doing something completely different in three years and I'll be calling that phase four. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love this because I think there's so much power in the pause, right? And not saying, okay, I'm just going to start looking for the same things or, you know, starting the grind again, but instead saying like, what are the ways in which I can think differently about my life and what success means to me? And what I love about what you've talked about is you took some of that pause and it gave you the time to reconnect with others. Yeah, that's another thing I wanted to mention while we talk is keep your network alive. So I have friends from high school, from law school, from when I lived in and worked in Atlanta, we just had a reunion here last summer, from Marriott, from Duncan, and just keep the network alive, uh, whether it's phone calls or texts or emails or social media, however you want to do it. Uh, But The old-fashioned phone call is very effective. Yeah. 
And this podcast is really nothing more than a radio show, right? It's been around forever. So keep your network alive and you'll be surprised what comes to you. So let's dig there a little bit. How does one keep their network alive? Well, I think you have to keep people in mind and make an effort to just catch up every now and then. And I'm a big believer in reunions. So we just had a family reunion for some cousins I hadn't seen in a long time. Now that COVID is somewhat more manageable, it's more realistic to travel and get together again, especially as the weather gets nicer. So I guess keep a rolling set of reunions in mind. Uh, travel to see people, invite people to, to come see you. There's just nothing like face-to-face, -face, right? Nothing like it. So I haven't gone as far as to making a calendar of catching up with people. But if I haven't talked to somebody for a year and there's somebody who I consider a friend, I'll just contact them and catch up. Simple as that. I like this idea of getting a bunch of people that are within, you know, I guess the same relationship zone in your mind together. You can reconnect with a lot of people at once. Are you someone that drives majority of these reunions? Yeah, I'm a bit of a planner. I've done that a number of times and I really enjoy it. Yeah, mark me as someone who is an organizer of these kinds of things. And it actually doesn't take as much work as you think, especially if you can delegate. So I want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to be an angel investor? Sure. I didn't really know much about angel investing myself until I started doing it. But an angel is someone who invests usually their own money in a startup business. Sometimes those startups are started by experienced entrepreneurs. Sometimes these are folks just out of college or even high school who have a great idea and a lot of passion. So we find or people come to us asking for not only money, not only capital, but also advice and counsel. Usually we'll put someone on the board of directors of a company and they'll stay with them for years and help guide them through all the obstacles and difficulties and challenges of being a startup. So it's the opportunity to every month hear about maybe four, five, six, seven new opportunities. And if you're interested, you can join a due diligence team and do more of a business due diligence, come up with a due diligence report. And then you get a chance to invest in these companies and you can invest as little or as much as you want, but it's an amazing way to become part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem and a participant in it. And boy, is it exciting. Sounds exciting. You talk about learning at warp speed. It's great. And does Launchpad have a specific type of startup that they focus on? Um, sort of, but there's a, a still a wide variety. They tend to want companies that are business to business focused, not so much consumer companies, often with a technological or software advantage or component to the business. But that's still a lot of categories of business. Also, I should say life sciences and health sciences are also in their wheelhouse. And with 170 members, you have in almost every case, someone who's an expert in that type of business who can come along and give you their two cents and even serve as an advisor to the companies. That's fascinating. It really is amazing to see all the energy in a place like Boston and New England that's going into entrepreneurial activities. I want to shift a little bit now to what we were talking about earlier, which, you know, you're also focusing on mentorship for first-time entrepreneurs. Tell me about what you're doing there. E4All started out in Lowell, and now there's E4Alls in a lot of different communities around New England and even around the country. So this is volunteer mentors who have typically had a career that are either still working or retired. And each entrepreneur applies and is accepted into the program and has an intensive three-month period of classroom study 
as well as regular meetings with their mentors. So with the mentor's assistance, create a business plan, create goals, put together a strategy for one to two years ahead, and you're helping to guide them along the way. And it's very powerful. These are mostly people from underrepresented communities who don't have a network in their life. And this is providing them with the kind of network that everybody wishes they had. So it's powerful, it's exciting. And a lot of these entrepreneurs are gonna create jobs in their communities and they're empowering themselves. It's a great program. I encourage anybody who has an interest in this to reach out for the local E4ALL chapter. Do you have to have had your own startup in order to be part of E4ALL? Not at all. Look at me. I've been a lawyer my whole career. I'm a little bit of an oddball in that group. But as, as long as you're willing to put in the time to understand the business and their challenges, a lot of the advice is non-technical. It's about hanging in there. It's about sticking with your strategy. It's about overcoming obstacles. And a lot of it is just about supporting them, telling them they can do it. They have what it takes. At this stage of development, they need a cheerleader. I think it's so wonderful that in both of these branches, both as an angel investor and as a mentor, you're providing so much value to these entrepreneurs and you're really providing the tools and the money that people need in order to succeed. Where do you think this comes from? We talked a little bit about franchising potentially having some you know, influence on that, but where do you think this drive to help others and specifically entrepreneurs comes from? Well, probably from my father. He was an inventor and he was a very creative person. He wrote music and poetry and so forth. And he created a business where he would help entrepreneurs take their ideas to market. That was his business. And so I just grew up in a house where he was always inventing things and tinkering with things. I can remember as a young kid giving him my two cents on this or that invention that was in the basement. Comes from a family background. Yeah. What kind of inventions? Well, if you play tennis, there's a different grip for the forehand and the backhand, and you have to constantly be shifting your hand a little bit this way or a little bit that way. So he invented a tennis racket where the grip would actually uh, rotate. It would click one way or click the other way. Smart. And so you would be spared the need to keep changing your grip. We had a working prototype. It never took off, but it could have. Who knows? That's one example. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Amazing. So let's move a little bit over to you as a stay-at-home dad, arguably one of the most important jobs. I want to talk a little bit about how does this fit into phase three of your life and what are you doing there? Well, it's a little bit mundane. It's a lot of driving to soccer games, preparing meals, making sure they get to where they need to go and doing their homework and practicing their pianos. That's the day-to-day -day nuts and bolts. But really, it's about being there for them and listening to them and helping them grow. So I think that's one of the most important things I'm doing right now is being there for them on a consistent basis. I'm always here when they come back home from school with a snack. And unfortunately, I have to hide monitors and phones so that they're not constantly on social media, <laughs> playing video games. So it's a little bit of a policeman function too. But this is an age where they need uh, their parents more than they want to admit. So I'm I'm really thrilled to be there for them. I think as a parent, the more and more we can find beauty in the mundane, the more and more we actually get to know our children as people. That's right. And just giving them a hug every day, multiple times a day, saying I love you, just makes everything worth it. 
before we get into rapid fire questions, I want to talk about how you'll be starting as a student at the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement in September 2022. I had no idea this was even a program until you mentioned it before our recording. Would you mind sharing with our listeners what this program is about and why you decided to enter this program? Sure. I just recently learned about this almost doing Google searches. And as far as I can tell, a unique program. They have their own building in Cambridge at Harvard University. And this is entirely made up of retired people, about 500 of them from all different backgrounds. Some have academic careers, some have had business careers, teachers, engineers, scientists, you name it. The courses are taught by the students. So after you have a few courses under your belt, you're expected to teach or co-teach a course and you don't even have to be an expert in it. You just have to get up to speed on it and be a discussion leader. So this is like liberal arts courses, medieval poetry, current events, Bitcoin, crypto, any topic you can think of is going to sooner or later be part of this curriculum. It's like a one room schoolhouse. You go to the same building, some are Zoom, some are in person. And it's a community of people who just love to learn and love to teach. So it just sounds like exactly what I want to do now is continue to always learn and meet new people and continue to grow. You were saying you were Googling. What were you Googling that you found this? I was Googling uh, adult education and retirement and a number of things came up and this was one of the most interesting ones. And of course, being Harvard, you actually have to fill out an application and go through interviews and get accepted into the program. But fortunately, I was able to do that. It must have been really weird to have to do that. It was sort of like applying to college all over again. I guess everyone has to be retired. Is that the, the number one requirement? That's right. That's exactly right. These are all retired people and mainly just so you have the time to devote to it. Not, not necessarily that you're a retired person, but that you have that kind of time. How many years is this? You sign up from year to year, but it oh. tends to be the kind of thing where people just keep on doing it year after year. Wow. So it really not only creates this continuous learning structure, but it also creates a community as well. Yeah. And they have a lot of extracurriculars, as they call them. So you could be in a play, you could speak in a foreign language, you can go to restaurants with other people, go to performances. They even have their own literary magazine. This sounds like a dream come true. I'm like, I wish I could retire right now so I could just join you in this. Keep it in mind. <laughs> I know. That's incredible. All right. So it's uh, time for our rapid fire questions. What does leadership in law mean to you? You know, I just think it means to live your values, to be the kind of person that someone would want to imitate, to be a role model. I think so much of what we learn is not formal instruction, but it's observational. You know, think about a, a teacher that was very important to you. It was usually how the teacher behaved and thought and cared about you, not so much the formal education that you got in that classroom. So I guess it would be try to be a person that others want to emulate that can help them succeed. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. In private practice, I think they need to reduce the hours and make it more of a manageable lifestyle. I think that's the number one problem in private practice, and it has been for eons. So I think getting rid of the billable hour has to be part of the solution. And in-house, I think more attention needs to be paid to leadership education, especially at larger law departments, but even smaller ones. I think there just has to be more of a curriculum for leadership. What would a curriculum like that look like for you? Um, I think it would be based on case studies of thick 
challenges that we all have, hiring, giving feedback, disciplining folks, dealing with having to terminate someone, how to encourage people to take on difficult assignments, how to encourage people to grow beyond what they think they can do. So it really is about managing people. And uh, that's an endlessly fascinating topic. No one has completely mastered it yet. I did recently see that Harvard created like a leadership in law program that they're starting to ramp up, uh, which I think is very interesting. I haven't looked into it because it just came on my radar today. I didn't know that, but I think that's a great development. And as a matter of fact, I think budding lawyers in law school should be exposed to a leadership segment that maybe as first years or third years. What is something that people misunderstand about the work that you did as a lawyer? Most non-lawyers think you're always in court arguing like you're on a TV show. I don't think that people understand that lawyers are advice givers and counselors. Many times it has to do with legal issues, but many times it doesn't. You're a counselor. You're someone who is a trusted advisor. And often you come at problems with a different perspective. You don't have necessarily a stake in the game. You can be a voice of reason, of impartial reason. And I think a lot of people don't understand that that's a function that lawyers serve and fulfill beyond their technical skills. There are so many times where I have this conversation with other people and I explain like, that is why they're called counsel. <laughs> like it's in the name. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of people think lawyers go around looking for loopholes. Most lawyers are telling their clients how to comply with the law, doing a public good as a result. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but what is a piece of practical advice for our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law who are looking to follow your lead. I would say never underestimate your own abilities. I tended to do that as a young lawyer. I tended to only want to do what I had already succeeded in. So I would say push yourself and ask others whether you think you're capable of doing something because a lot of times they'll see something in you that you don't even see. So really listen to the advice of others as to what you're capable of, but only listen to people who really know you. Don't listen to people who put you in a box and judge you. It's great advice. Who is somebody that really shaped your journey in life? I would have to say my mother. She was someone who was calm, was trustworthy, had impeccable judgments, and really paid it in our community, whether it was in education or she was in local government. But she was someone who people came to for advice and counsel and always had time to listen and was a great role model for me. As a mom, I always love when people recognize their mother. So thank you for that. <laughs> yep. Last question before we wrap up. What do you do for self-care? You have to exercise, whether it's taking a walk in the woods, cycling, doing a sport, you know, even just walking. You've got to exercise. You've got to get outside. And especially now, you have to unplug. I know people are plugged in listening to this. But you've got to get in the habit of turning your phone off, putting it in a drawer, and leaving the house and doing something. I really believe that because I found myself putting my phone next to my bedside table and I felt like I was mentally always tethered to it. So I would say untether yourself for quiet, contemplative time. Such a simple piece of advice, but so difficult to implement. It's really hard even now for me to leave the house without my phone. Me too. And sometimes I'll leave my house with my phone, even though I know I'm not going to use it. Right. 
Exactly. I'm running into the car to pick up my kids from school. I'm not going to be looking at it while I'm driving. I'm not going to be looking at it while I'm picking them up. There is a uh, an attachment or reliance on having it around. And yes, you're right. It's important to exercise the ability to live without it and to actually practice living without it. Yeah. And especially for younger people who grew up with phones, I didn't. So I know what life is like without it. And frankly, it's a little bit better. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I was a teenager in the 90s. Cell phones didn't really come out until like the late 90s, or they weren't at least in everyone's pocket until the late 90s. And they weren't smartphones yet. And I think about the parties that I went to and the high school gatherings that I was in. uh, We were just talking to each other so much more and looking each other in the eyes and engaging with each other in such a different way. Exactly. And even when I'm with someone in person, I always try to put my phone down and encourage them to put their phone down. So it's literally not even on the table. Yeah. So that you can just focus on what's in front of you. So important. Well, I want to thank you so much, David. This was an excellent conversation. I had a lot of fun. If someone wanted to connect with you, what is the best way that they can do so? Well, on the theory of unplugging, the only social media I'm in is LinkedIn. So look me up on LinkedIn and send me a message and I'd be happy to um, to respond to anybody who does that. And thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, Seagull. Me too. Thank you so much, David, and we'll talk soon. Okay, take care. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.